when we talk about you know because vegas is kind of this really interesting um it's it's a very unique city you know sin city is, is its nickname and you know i think it's kind of obviously it's known for gambling which is kind of the the key centerpiece at least in the beginning but it also kind of became known uh or is known as the, kind of the place where you can do anything uh, as a matter of fact i had a conversation um with my producer sarah about how you know, there must be, I'm getting a little off topic again, but there must be some, um, I, I have to imagine there's an, a really underground black market for things that you definitely should not be doing, but 100% are available in Vegas. Is, do you th- what do you think about that? I'm sure there is. Anytime you have a lot of money coming in one place, I think there's a way for goods and services to find their way to that place. Yeah. Black market. I mean, I imagine, you know, I don't know if this is true, so I don't want anyone to come after me, but I would imagine that you can probably hunt the ultimate game at some place in Las Vegas, um, although I don't have any evidence to back that up. That's possible. You know, maybe not with all of the difficulties difficulties you would have getting it into the country, but pretty much I think outside of that, um, if you have the money, you can probably find it. It's- it's really crazy. Now, where does, uh, in the gambling world, where does Las Vegas rank right now? Right now, Las Vegas is the city that has the second most gambling in it. Macau in China is the first. And where does Monte Carlo fit on that? Are they third? Monte Carlo, is, as far as gambling goes, is really not even, you know, it's really nowhere in that big list. Hmm. As far as the dollar amount goes, it's just nowhere near Las Vegas and definitely nowhere near Macau. Wow. Um, how did uh, how did the gambling start there? I mean, it's kind of what Las Vegas is known for, uh, at least in the beginning, and especially in the United States. Maybe not in the world anymore, but definitely in the United States. Mm-hmm. Where did where did gambling start in in Nevada? Gambling in Las Vegas and Nevada really started as a last resort. So, in the state of Nevada, when it became a state in 1864, gambling was outlawed. 1869, they said, "Let's legalize it." So they did. It was legal for 40 years. In 1909, they said, We're, we want to become more modern and more progressive. Let's get rid of the gambling. So that didn't work that great because people kept on gambling and they, the state just wasn't getting any money from it. So when the Great Depression was at its worst in 1931, the legislature decided to, re- decided to re-legalize commercial gambling, and that put us on the road where we are today. So as it was becoming legal, um, so when it, when the ban was lifted, in the book you mentioned that there's this um, kind of like this whole war over, what do you call it, the, the race wire. Um, yes. what, what is that and why was it such a big deal? So in the United States at the time, most of the illegal gambling going on was on horse races. And what happened was people wanted about on horses, but they didn't have the time or the ability to go to the track. So thanks to the telegraph, you could send the results really anywhere in the world from a race. So they started doing that. Now, the people who ran that tended to be in the mob related to organized crime just because it was so lucrative. If you had the right to own this race wire that carried the results, you could basically monopolize all the gambling in that city. So there was a lot of violence around it. There were bombings, you know, basically domestic terrorism, not around religion or politics, but around running the race wire. And that was pretty much 1910s, 19-teens, through the 1940s. Through the, oh, really? 
Yeah. I mean, there was really that level of domestic violence. Um, well, not domestic violence, yeah, but domestic terrorism, terrorism, I should say. Basically, yeah. I mean, it flared up. Uh, there were assassinations, murders, bombings. It kind of flared up again in the mid-40s, uh-huh. which is around the time that Ben Siegel was involved with the Flamingo, which is why many people think that he was killed because of the race wire had nothing to do with Vegas. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea it was that big of a deal. And what's so interesting is – you know, again, you know, and one of the themes we talked about was kind of how history repeats itself. And I don't think I've ever seen it any more than as I was reading your book about the history of Vegas, which, or the history of gambling, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really interesting to see because, I mean, there's no, no one's getting shot over races, you know, over the internet. But a lot of, you know, as we'll get to, gambling has moved online, which is essentially yeah. the digital version of the analog technology of the telegraph, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't see that kind of, like, violence now. Um, but it's just so interesting that that was such a big deal back then. What I find really interest, interesting from the consumer and the cultural standpoint is that I would argue that the race wire was the first remote entertainment in the United States. Hmm. Okay. Because what they would do is you would run the wire in and you would have an announcer. You know, obviously you've got the betting windows and the board and they're writing the odds and stuff like that. But as the race unfolds, you have an announcer who's basically reading what's happening and announcing the race and people were reacting. And there's people at the time were writing like, Oh, this is a disgrace. They're jumping up and down and yelling. And the race is a thousand miles away. You know, today that's what people do when they watch any kind of sport and TV, not even sports and TV. They get all excited. Yeah. Game of Thrones people or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get all excited. But back then, this was a novelty. So sort of this is the first time it happens. Because if you think about it, you know, you're not – football wasn't that – and this is back in the 19th century. Football wasn't that popular nationally. Baseball was, but the nature of baseball is not quite the same as maybe a two- or three-minute horse race with that same level of excitement. So this was really the first time people would get together and have that kind of remote entertainment. That's incredible. I mean it's um... – yeah, that's it's just fascinating. Uh, and one of the things that that Vegas is known for is prize fighting for uh, you know f- for boxing. And so, when did that kind of start? Because Vegas was kind of the the mecca for that as well, right? This started relatively late. So originally, now of course, if you look at Nevada in 1909, there was the famous Jackson uh, Johnson Jeffries fight, which California didn't want, so Nevada took it, and there were race riots after the fight, and there was actually a there was a resolution in Congress to ban the interstate transmission of any kind of boxing match because they were so afraid of this. I mean, that's a whole other story. So you had that back in 1909. It doesn't really carry on in Nevada, and boxing really becomes big in Vegas in the 70s. Hmm. And it's mostly because of Caesar's Palace. Hmm. First, the Clifford Perlman, who at the time was the chairman of the board of Caesar's World, like to play tennis. So the first thing they did was they went into tennis and they had built a tennis pavilion. Um, this is incidentally the area later where WrestleMania was when it was at Caesar's palace. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They also had a, a racetrack, the grand prix, which is where the forum shops is today. And the last thing they did was championship boxing. And, you know, this is again, when heavyweight championship boxing was a huge deal, very big in the 70s and in the, in the 80s, Atlantic City contended, and there was a lot of fights at Convention Hall, but really Las Vegas kept that crown. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, it's it's really fascinating because boxing has kind of always been like an ebb and flow kind of a sport. It's kind of seeing a resurgence, but it kind of died out for a while. Um, and I, I always think of Vegas when I when I think of boxing, but uh, that's really interesting it didn't happen until 
until much later. One of the cool things about uh, the particular the Johnson Jeffries fight that you mentioned is it was promoted by Tex Rickard. And mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to quickly mention because I just thought this was really cool. He's a boxing promoter. Um, and he basically turned his ownership of a gambling hall uh, into ownership of the New York Rangers, and he built the Mad- and, and he built Madison Square Gardens. Yeah, and it shows that back then there was much more cross pollination between gambling and sports. You know, and definitely if you looked at baseball, there was gambling going on at all the games. You know, after the Black Sox scandal in 1919, that's when they put the mm-hmm. lid on it. But before that, it was pretty much blatant gambling and i'm not going to say they didn't care but a lot of it went on so 1931 as we move from boxing um 1931 was kind of a big year um because that's when essentially gambling gambling becomes legal everything becomes legal right yeah so 1931 work starts on hoover dam which was huge for las vegas 1931 Commercial gambling is re-legalized in Nevada. And in 1931, the legislature passes another law that allows people to establish residency in Nevada for six weeks, and then they can get a no-fault divorce. So this was the big year. (laughs) Yeah. And what's great about that, because how does that tie into um, marriages in there? Because kind of one of the other thing, Vegas is known for a lot of things, but also Mm -hmm. the fact that you can have like a drive-through marriage. So yeah. it, was it, did it stem from that divorce thing or was it uh, separate? How is that related? The ma- So in general, Nevada always had much more liberal laws for marriage and divorce than other states, you know, and that has really, as other states have liberalized their divorce laws, they haven't necessarily done that with the marriage laws. So there's still That's for sure. a lot more obstacles and roadblocks as opposed to Vegas where Elvis can do it. And, you know, if you ever want to talk to somebody <laughs> interesting, talk to one of the Elvis impersonators who marries people because those that's really exciting. I have an honors college class and yeah. we did a field trip to the um, Viva Las Vegas wedding chapel and we just hung out there and the bride and groom let us take part in their wedding and it was incredible. You know, Elvis <laughs> came in in the 57 caddy. It was it was just wild. Was, is that a permanent part of your class? Do you do that every year, every semester? I think I will. Yeah, next time I teach that, it's an honor <laughs> Next time I do, we're going to go back because it was just so great. And it was, you kind of really saw what it means and why people do it. Yeah. And it's just a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I love that part of it. I mean, you know, the impersonators are also awesome too, which we'll get to in a second. I mean, it's fun, you know. When you get so when you, when games become legal, I th- thought this was kind of cool because throughout the book you talk about the evolution of card games. But this is kind of where a lot of these card games kind of go away. A Pharaoh being one of them, which you talk about a lot, but it seems like it was super easy to cheat at the game. Um, so what games? Why did games go away, and then which ones kind of emerged to the top? Well, originally the big game in 19th century America was a game called Pharaoh. F A R O. It was known as the game that won the West. If you were, you know, looking at a period accurate Western recreation, they'd be playing Pharaoh most likely or poker. Uh, Problem with Pharaoh is that there's a very small house edge. So if you're going to consistently win money at it, you're probably going to cheat the customers. Mm -hmm. This was not going to go over so well in Nevada casinos. So Pharaoh, because it wasn't as profitable as the other games, pretty much went away in the 30s. Hmm. Um, well, and it's it's interesting because in 31, one thing I forgot to mention, which is kind of cool, is that slot machines were also illegal in 1931. 
um, which have become a staple. I think they're the that's the highest grossing, that's the biggest revenue stream in Vegas right now. Slot machines, right? Yeah, slot machines for all you know, all of Nevada, pretty much all the U.S. slot machines make more money than table games. Now, there's some casinos in Vegas in the Strip, you know, someplace like the Bellagio with a lot of high rollers probably makes more money from table games but even then it's pretty close to 50 50 wow um and it's yeah that's it's so crazy to me because i've seen people play slot machines that that's that feels like an addiction to me you know i know gambling can kind of be a bad thing but it, there's no real fun in it because you're you're playing against this unfeeling machine and you're hoping it's going to pay out and you know full well that it's it's not going to you keep chasing this payoff when it comes to like table games even if you're playing blackjack you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that you have an advantage and it feels more interactive and maybe there's different types of gamblers but i've always just found that super interesting that people will sit at a slot machine for hours it just doesn't seem any fun it's definitely a different kind of gambling. I think it's a different, you know, instead of looking for that interaction, people are looking to just kind of zone out or yeah. they just want to kill some time. It's a totally different mindset, I think. Yeah, no, it totally is. Um, now, let's talk about, let's let's hit some of the major points and the evolution of Vegas itself, because there's some really cool things that go on here, starting with uh, Harold's. And Harold's, from what I understand, Harold's is kind of the place when they opened up. It was bright colors. They had women dealers. Um, they would teach people how to play. It was a little more friendly. And this kind of was a full, like, 180 from the hardened, like, Western-style, like, gamblers. Uh, was that the, kind of the beginning of what we see in Vegas today? Oh, well, yeah. Well, Harold's was in Reno, and it's kind of a oh, quintessential— it's a quintessential Reno, which is a big difference from Vegas in that they always had women dealers and it was really just focused on gambling. You went in there to gamble, period. You didn't go there to see a show. Originally, the casinos in Vegas were a lot like that, although they didn't have women dealers until the 1970s. What Vegas did different was they realized that people might not be able to go on a vacation and just say, we're just coming to gamble. They said, all right, we're going to have Frank Sinatra in the showroom and a fine restaurant and all this other stuff and really nice pool. And if you just happen to gamble five or six hundred dollars while you're here, well, that's that just happened. You didn't come here to do it. Mm. So I think that's how Vegas evolved to be different from Reno, which is pretty important. Hmm. No, that is interesting because Bill Hare also created, obviously, Harris, which is a yeah. national chain, but he had a very customer-friendly way of doing things. I like this approach because it really opens it up to a wide spectrum of people to come and basically lose their money. Yeah, I mean, Harris' idea pretty much was everything should be standardized no matter which shift they come on or which casino they come into, they should get the same thing. So that was his big emphasis. I, love, I mean, it's an ultimate franchising of a casino, which I didn't even know existed, but it makes perfect sense. As a matter of fact, if you want to standardize the experience, a casino would be the place you'd want to do it. I think it is just because the games are all the same. You know, even if you go up and down the strip, the games are pretty much the same. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, but it's people can, you know, people can lose their money anywhere. But if you know you're going to lose it, you either want to lose it at a place where you think you're going to win or you're going to have a good time doing it. Because um, I've been in some casinos where it feels like they don't want you there. And even though I know they're not cheating, I feel like they're working against me. And that's not a place I want to spend my money. Yeah, you know, I can see that. And that's kind of the genius of Vegas is that all right, we're going to have people go all the way, you know, drive or fly for hours to go to this desert where it's really hot and they're going to play negative expectation games and they're going to lose. 
but they're going to come back and they're going to want to come back. I mean, to right. me, that is just genius marketing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. That's a really good point. So we had 1941. There's kind of an influx of organized crime um, at this point. Can you explain the importance of the El Ranch Vegas? The El Rancho Vegas was the first casino in what is now the Strip. It was built by a guy named Thomas Hull, who had owned hotels in California. And basically, his idea was, I'm going to build this really nice hotel for Las Vegas, but not in Las Vegas. I'm going to build it out on Highway 91. The reason why I did this was because there was a lot of auto traffic, and he didn't want people leaving his hotel to go spend money in other places. So it was the first really all-inclusive resort in Las Vegas, which was self-contained, which had the dining, mm -hmm. entertainment, and the gambling and the rooms all in one place. And th and that's really key because that is, I mean, that has existed since since that point in Vegas. And the last, the hotel Last Frontier was the first mm -hmm. themed resort. So that one yes. was like a Wild West theme. Um, at this point, so so you mentioned Bugsy Siegel earlier. He's kind of interesting because he's kind of the person who is credited with founding Las Vegas, um, but but he didn't really, and he wasn't that good of a casino owner. Why does he get the credit? I think Ben Siegel gets all that notoriety because it was such an incredible story. You know, he's a gangster. He was murdered. He died young. There's a lot of mystique around him. And much more interesting than this former theater owner and hotel owner, you know, Thomas Hall. Hmm. I, mean, <laughs> I guess I guess so. Um, you know, it's funny how history can kind of pick and choose the nuggets that it that it yeah. that it polishes off. Um, so th when we say that, you know, organized crime comes in, they really kind of owned the town. I mean, they paid off lawmakers. They paid off, um, law, you know, the, the police, all that stuff. You make some, a really interesting point because I always wondered, well, what's the advantage of going into business with the mob? And you answer it perfectly because there's essentially three parts, which is finance. They have a lot of money. Marketing, they're able to get people there. And the key, which I didn't realize, although it makes sense, was debt collection because legally you couldn't collect debts. But illegally, yes. you could just send a couple of toughs over there and you know, turn them upside down until the coins fell out. If they had to, which I don't think it usually came to that, there's usually a couple of things that would happen before that. First of all is gambling was a tightly knit community back then. A reputation meant a lot. So a gambler would not want to be known as a Welsher. You know, that would be, mm -hmm. God forbid. So a lot of times they wouldn't pay the bills that creditors could take them to court for. They would pay their gambling debts instead. And that was seen as being honorable. The <laughs> other thing is that I actually talked to a guy once who, act, who wasn't a mob guy. He was more of a pretty big cowboy guy. And he was in the 70s when I talked to him. He still was a pretty big, tough cowboy guy. And he just told me how he this big player, like lived down in, I think, Seal Beach, California, or somewhere around there. You know, Newport Beach, Seal Beach, somewhere down there. And he called him. He's like, so I drove down there. I called him from Barstow and said, all right, I'm on my way down. I'll be there in like, you know, three hours. And by the time I go all that way, I hope you have something for me. <laughs> and I think usually that sufficed. You know, and again, he didn't do anything. He yeah. just yeah. said, I'm going to be in your house in three hours. And I hope you have something for me. With so your family and your children and you know, probably have a gun. But yeah. 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 You know, and again, this wouldn't be the stereotypical mobster, but sure. I probably would have had something for him. <laughs> sure. No, it makes it makes sense. So this 
is is the point so 1955 is the creation of the gaming control board is that kind of where the beginning of the cleanup kind of happened it is because the key offer committee met in 5051 and they were really worried that congress might pass some kind of excise tax on all gambling and they didn't want that to happen and the idea was let's get our house in order let's have nevada clean up the industry so the feds don't come in and this was a possibility into the 60s when bobby kennedy wanted to shut down a lot of casinos and it was only his brother telling him basically look if you do that a democrat will never be elected in nevada until the end of time if you do this so he didn't do it but this is a very real danger into the 60s Hmm. Well, so they kind of clean it up. And, you know, at the same time, they're, you know, they're kind of realizing that Vegas is filled up on weekends, but not during the weeks. So is is what how did they fix that problem? Because you got to you know, you got all these hotel rooms or they're starting to build these bigger resorts. You know, they're starting to make gaming a little bit cleaner. Um, how do you get people in during the week? In the 50s, what Las Vegas did is they started appealing to business travelers and building convention centers and adding convention space to casinos. So this link goes back pretty far. And when you read stuff, the correspondence of some of these casino owners and casino executives, you expect to see kind of sorted stuff with, you know, mob nicknames and stuff like that. And instead, they're really excited because the Cadillac dealers of Oregon have agreed to have their annual meeting here. And they're, <laughs> that's what they spend a lot of time doing, you know, tracking down, doing group sales. This is so funny. Um, so, you know, it, it's starting to get popular. The, you know, the gambling's a little bit easier to do. Uh, and, you know, kind of it's appealing to middle America. And I think one of the other real catalysts to get people to Vegas was kind of this idea that blackjack was a predictable game where at least you, if you did certain things, you could enhance your odds of winning. Do you think that had an effect on the popularity of Vegas in this particular time period? I think blackjack definitely did. If you look at the history of games in Las Vegas, you know, in the 40s and 50s, craps was the big game. After Ed Thorpe, a mathematician, writes Beat the Dealer, and that, that comes out in 62, all of a sudden people have this roadmap to beat the game of blackjack. And they come to Vegas to try to do that. And that definitely made blackjack the more popular game. So, you know, it's it's funny because, like, I think people come for certain – I mean, I could be wrong. But like we mentioned, people come for slots. People come for – blackjack you know now a lot of people come for poker i think the popular you know the popularization of specific games nationally does have a major effect on the 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 amount of travelers that come to las vegas um you know like the world series of poker uh you know we'll get to the history of that just in a second because it's 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 pretty fascinating but um has that is that kind of ex- just keeps ex- you know the exponential rise of of the popularity of vegas does that have an effect on that I think it does. I think, you know, even though the majority of people who come to Las Vegas don't come for the primary purpose of gambling, if you have a game like poker that catches on or today maybe even sports betting, I think it definitely um, makes more people want to come to Vegas. You know, one of the things as we're talking about the finishing, the cleaning up, I talked about this briefly in our main in our main conversation, but I love Howard Hughes. I think he is just a fascinating figure. Um 
Uh, let's just talk about his tenure in Vegas really quickly because I think it's really important, not only for the cleanup of Vegas, but just on, an, on a fascination level because he kind of took over hotels, was buying them up with this money, was controlling um, you know, controlling TV stations and, and hotels. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was kind of like the as he was getting crazier, he was owning Vegas, but he had a positive effect. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Howard Hughes, when he moved to Vegas, basically he had been in Boston. The media in Boston started asking a lot of questions and wanted to talk to him. So he decided he needed to get, a, get away from it all. And for whatever reason, I don't know his thought process, but he decided if I don't want anybody to bother me. I'm going to move into a hotel on the Las Vegas Strip, which blows my... This is in 1966, Thanksgiving in 1966. So he does that. And they want him to leave the hotel when New Year's rolls around so they can get gamblers in there. He, he took the top two floors, the Desert Inn. Well, he instead, he says he'll buy the casinos. So he buys the Desert Inn. He buys the Sands. He buys a bunch of other casinos and becomes the biggest employer in Nevada. The politicians loved this. At the time, Hughes had a reputation as this groundbreaking aviator, billionaire, industrialist. And here he was, he could be anywhere in the world, and he was buying up casinos in Nevada. So that perception, I think, really made it a lot easier for other casinos to get mainstream investors. I did think it's interesting that he and Frank Sinatra did not get along. So Ooh, Frank yeah. ended up leaving and going to Caesar's Palace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And him and Sinatra, real rivalry there. Real that, rivalry there. That, that's Allegedly so, over Ava Gardner, but who knows? Oh, that's oh I didn't know, realize that. Yeah. That's oh that's oh, yeah. I was wondering what they were what their beef was. Like I've what? heard that it was Ava, you know, because Frank was absolutely in love with her. Mm. Allegedly Hughes had been involved with her, but who knows? Hmm. Well, and, and the Desert Inn has a little bit of history, uh, which is now, you know, it's been demolished and that's where the mm -hmm. the win is, right? Yeah. Um, yes. it, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I would love to have seen that because it was such a historic, um, you know, historic resort. It would have been, I wish there was like some protection on that, but I do understand that on the strip there is nothing that's sacred. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with, you know, as this is going on, you know, become a little more legit, Atlantic City kind of becomes you know, then becomes like this city. They start rejuvenating. This is kind of how you got involved. They're blowing up, uh, you know, old casinos, putting yeah. up new ones, which puts pressure on Vegas to do what to compete. Originally, Vegas competed by going more middle class, middle market, mass market. And that worked really well. They started to make a lot of money. But then in the 90s, after the construction of the Mirage, which was a very big but more upscale hotel, they went in that direction. And this is when they started adding the unique restaurants and the not so unique restaurants, but celebrity chef restaurants and a lot of the entertainment. They really started to make money from all the other things. And people came to Las Vegas, not just to gamble. Yeah. And that has a, you know, that had a very lasting effect. And I do want to mention, yeah, I keep politics out of my podcast. So this has nothing to do with politics, but in your book, and this happened, you know, you wrote the book a couple of years ago, so this is was not related to Trump being president. But you have a story about Trump entering into Atlantic City um, and his his deal with Harris and Hilton and, and Hilton and him buying a casino. That's a really fascinating story. So I want if you if you read the book for no other reason, check out that story because it's absolutely fascinating and and quite an insight into uh, the business dealings. So let's go to 1989. And the mirage effect, because I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there was any greater effect on the Las Vegas culture 
um, and the casinos as the mirage effect. Because, you know, I guess what we gloss over really quickly is as the mob went out of Vegas, a lot of big corporations were buying up a lot of these casinos and, and you know, renovating them and making them bigger and, and turning them into real resorts. Uh, so the mirage, the mirage opens up. How does that change everything? The Mirage is the first casino that had to earn more than a million dollars a day to stay in business. And a lot of people thought they couldn't do it. When they did it, everyone else said, this is what we want to do because it's a higher margin business. It's more profitable. So that's how the Mirage changed casinos in Las Vegas. And and so basically every – it became like a destination. Um, mm-hmm. People wanted to go there. It, you know, it did the best job of keeping people inside the casino. And so everyone kind of had to have a new makeover for this. Um, this is, you know, this is really an interesting uh, change because, you know, in modern Vegas, you, you, when you look at some of these places, I don't know how they fill these gigantic resorts you know, over a weekend or like continually. I mean, these are like th- how many, how many on average, how many rooms are in a Vegas resort? About 3,000, which is huge. Wow. And there's no, and it's not just there's one resort. There's you know, how yeah. many? How many are on the strip? Like, would is About it twenty some? Twenty? Okay, that's yeah. a, that's a lot. That's like almost what sixty thousand <laughs> hotel rooms. Yeah, so there's about one hundred and fifty thousand rooms in all of Vegas. So <laughs> they managed to keep them around ninety percent occupancy. So that's pretty good. That's insane. Uh, it's absolutely insane. So you know the resorts come along. So we have modern Vegas. And in the book, you know, you kind of talk about the Internet revolution. How does the how does the Internet, the availability of online betting, how does that kind of change Vegas in its current state? Well, what it does for poker is it, it causes a boom in poker. When online poker gets big, you know, poker at Nevada casinos gets really big. And now that online poker has cooled off a bit over the past 10 years, you know, poker in Nevada has cooled off a little bit. But we really haven't seen it hurt the Las Vegas Strip, because most people coming there aren't just coming to gamble. You know, even though the actual amount of money that people gamble is down, the money they spend in Vegas is up because they're spending more non-gaming. Hmm. Well, you know, we didn't mention the beginning of, of the World Series of Poker because it's pretty fascinating. And it it has these really cool roots. I love the idea that it's a place where you're going to find out who the best poker player in the world is. I think it was by, well, it originally started out with... Uh, one of the Nick the Greeks, there are several in yeah. the history, um, versus, is it Johnny Moss? Is he? Uh... Johnny Moss, and that's kind of a legendary story. The real origin of it was this Texas Gamblers reunion up in Reno that they eventually moved down to Vegas. And the marketing part is that they said, well, it's not just the Texas Gamblers reunion, it's the World Series of Poker, which made it this big international event that they would publicize pretty much everywhere. Well, and, and that kind of developed into the World Series of Poker. It was at Binion's, and it has since moved. But I love this idea of it being the best poker players in the world. I love watching the World Series of Poker, um, but it's kind of disappointing that anyone who slaps down $10,000 can show up. And when you have all these amateurs in there, you know, luck is going to run with them once in a while. And so you, you have, I think it's, I forget what it is now, but you've had, you know, 12, 15 years where... A, a professional poker player has not won the World Series of Poker. Um, it's a little disappointing because I like, you know, I'm a little kind of old-fashioned. I like the old days where you kind of got the best grizzled gamblers who knew what they were doing in a room to see who really was the best. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish it was invite-only is all I'm saying. 
Yeah, I mean, that's also the strength of it, where there's no other sport or activity where you can really just take your $10,000 and go in right. this pool with, like, the world's greatest. You know, imagine if you could do that with basketball or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you just go to the combine if you wanted to just show yeah. up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting. So the current state of of – there's a couple of cool, fun things going on right now in Vegas. You know, obviously, you can bet on – you know, sports betting is, is online. It's become – you know, there's lots of states that are legalizing it. it you mm-hmm. know, that was kind of, that's kind of been in the news lately. Um, I think that's really interesting because Vegas being the only place you can bet on sports, I think it's actually – have a lot of the casinos gotten in on this online betting? Because as far as name recognition goes, I would rather go online and bet with a casino that I'm familiar with than just betting at any random online location. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, they're really scrambling to do this. And you'll see MGM and Caesars and other casinos in Las Vegas are getting their names and products that are available now and more of them will be available soon. And, and one other thing that, that's kind of cool is the Dallas Cowboys have recently locked a partnership with a casino, um, and they're the first major sports company or sports team to have a partnership with a casino. Um, and in Vegas, and sports have been kind of interesting because there haven't really been um, a lot of sports teams in Vegas for obvious reasons. But they have a hockey team, which is doing incredibly well, and they're getting mm-hmm. an NFL team. So, what do you see as the future of Vegas as it relates to sports betting? I think it remains a place where is sort of the nerve center of sports betting. You've got a lot of experience here. They've been doing it for many years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. So where do you see um, the history? Like, where do you see Vegas going um, as far as just the strip? What do you think the next innovation is? I think it's going to be something non-gaming. I think, you know, with gambling so widespread across the country, they can't rely on that. So I think it'll be more non-gaming stuff, um, probably something really interesting that I can't even think of. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, Stumping You is a great place to end. Uh, <laughs> this is good. Uh, David, I really appreciate you taking more time out, man. This is this is really uh, fascinating stuff. The, the history of Vegas is really cool. Uh, so thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real treat.